Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello Trojan fans and welcome to episode number 180 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is August 1st, 2011, beginning of August, USC fall camp just around the corner. We got a lot to talk about this week on the podcast, talking about USC fall camp, of course, starting up the 2011 season, players back on the practice field. We got Coach Harvey Hyde, Dan Weber coming up on the show, talk to them about this USC football team expectations for 2011 we've got a ton of questions from you this week if you have questions we'd love to hear from you podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address you can just drop us an email or you can give us a call we got a couple of voicemails today 206-888-6755 is the number that's 206-888-6755 give us a call we'll play your question on the air coach Harvey Hyde is joining us in the first segment, Coach, how are you doing today? Everything good? I'm doing absolutely beautiful. I tell you, we had a great week last week, last Tuesday over at uh, Media Day. So we had a chance to visit with the coaches and see all our friends in the media and, and get ready more even for this football season. Uh, agree with the media, disagree with the media, listen to the coaches, get their feelings, and just get started uh, because football season will be opening camp, and that means we're pretty close to the opening game September 3rd in the Coliseum, and that's going to be uh, a good one, I think, against the Golden Gophers. I agree with you, Coach, and I think this USC fan base is ready for some real football as opposed to talking about sanctions or NCAA, whatever. They want to hear the cracking of the pads, and I think we do as well. We get to start doing that at fall camp. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor, Southern California Tickets. SCTickets.com. If you need tickets for any of those upcoming USC home games, seven of them this year, go to SCTickets.com or tickets for anything, concerts, some kind of sporting event besides college football, even though that's what's on our minds right now, the theater. You can call them to 1-800-888-7287 is their number or go to SCTickets.com. And Coach, starting things off here, fall camp. I just want to maybe get your thoughts going into this camp. You excited? You ready for things to get going here? I really am. I don't think there's a boring boring period of sports right now. This is the boringest time of life right now. You open the sports page and what do you do? You look at the ads. I don't read the articles. I just want to read the ads because it, it's not a real exciting time of year. Of course you want to read about the NFL. Are they coming to L.A. or they aren't coming to L.A.? But, you know, there isn't that much. I mean, there was, even wasn't much coverage on the Pac-12 tournament, I mean, not tournament, Pac-10 or Pac-12 media day. I mean, I look to read some articles and get the opinions of people and so on, but I don't know. I guess it's a vacation period for the writers, too, at the papers. And uh, I, I think uh, it's a setup. I really do. I tell you, you can't get any boring, boring than what it is until football starts and you look forward to your a daily article and read Gary Klein and read all the different people and you agree or disagree and you get out to practice and watch the team and see who's playing well and who's playing what position and you you start to build up for the football season but right now you know everybody just take a vacation and cool it uh, if I don't get my morning newspaper I don't complain so uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean it's it's really now when you guests start to get ready for practice and get ready for football it's a great time of the year it's really the most exciting time of the year it's a thing that sets the tone for the universities when the students come back on campus high school when they open up they come back to football the, the whole thing it's a it's a morale for the alumni the students uh, the whole uh, people uh, who love football and love competition and love the bands and love the cheerleaders and song girls and tailgating and all that how can it get any better than that it's tough coach it's tough to get better and you can you know you you don't need the paper all the time coach you go read dan weber on uscfootball.com every day too i know you like doing that i do and i want <laughs> you to know that's why your website is so important to freaks like me who need to know what is going on the first thing you call me to uh, get started on is on the show like we're doing now i, I I ask you, what's going on? What, tell me what's happened. What do you know? What, because 
it's it's a, an information center, your website, and people like to know what's going on, but they don't hear it in the newspaper. They don't hear it even on the uh, on the reports. On I mean, on TV. I mean, I don't know what these guys are thinking or what they're covering, but they just cover the same thing over and over and over and talk about how many times the guy hit foul balls. I mean, I, I never heard of anything like that. Or, I mean, get into some other topics. You know what I mean? I do, and that's what we do here on the Peristyle Podcast. And uh, since we have a lot of questions, Coach, let's jump right into them and see what's going on. Uh, Gene is from Coto de Casa. says he loves the podcast as usual. And the, co- the question is for you, Coach. If a miracle happened and you were made USC's head coach, what three or four things would you stress or change with the offense and defense, perhaps a spread offense or shotgun? Love to see. He said, I would love to see you coach this team. Well, it probably would have to be a miracle. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, the first thing I'd, I'd probably do is to, is to, first of all, not change much. It, the tradition is there. And the first thing I'd recognize uh, was that I think that the greatest group of players in the Pac-12 are all located at USC. If I had, there was a lottery, and you hear me say it every week, that if I had a, a roster to pick from, if I became a head coach in the Pac-12, where would I go to for my roster to be the USC roster? I think the greatest players and greatest traditions, uh, you can talk about great traditions currently now at Oregon and other places in Stanford. Nothing against any of you alumnus from any of those schools, but USC has what you call, uh, it's the melting pot of college football. It's where the tradition is. It's where it's all at. It's where you can recruit to. It's a Trojan family. And I didn't go to USC, but I can see it. I can see it, and I think you can build around that, and I think uh, it's a great, great place to go to school and get you both your academics and your athletic uh, experiences. So I think that probably what I would do is evaluate every player on the team, and try to place these players into a position where they could best excel in their abilities. I would first of all make sure I had my best 22 players on the field at all the time. I uh, would not have back, great backups don't help you. Great, great players do. And I, wanted to, I would want to make sure that all my players were on the field most of the game. And, yes, I'd try to rotate some because some are very equal because you have great depth at USC. And uh, I think that I would bring a style of offense that suited the players that were already there. I would uh, then recruit to that as far as after determining what my style of play would be on offense and defense, but I certainly would take advantage of the great players that are currently at USC. And then I would make sure that they all understood what USC football meant, uh, what it's all about, uh, that it's not uh, me, it's team, and that uh, no one is bigger than the USC tradition and the, and the alumni and the people that are there. I certainly would allow, if I could, have that happen as far as practice. I don't know what their philosophy is going to be, but I would bring back the enthusiasm at practice. There's nothing like having a 1,000 fans at a practice or 500 people at a practice because the kids get enthused and, and work hard uh, for the fans that visit practice. Right now, I don't think that the same enthusiasm, I don't see how it could be at practice, because you have 10 people at practice. Before, there used to be 500 people at practice and so on, and the players would look to the sideline, not knowing who all the people were, but it really did bring juices to the, to them as far as getting ready to play. And I've talked to players about this, and they, they agree with me. You always have a greater effort when you know people are there evaluating and watching you and so on. So I would try to talk to Pat Hayden and say, hey, let's open the doors. It's time to get back to USC, time to have the family back and families and ex-players back on the field, on the practice field, and let's be part of what USC is all about. That's one thing I would work for. I would also continue with the recruiting, which is very difficult at this time, but yet you can be very successful at this time. There's 44, I think, freshmen on this team, uh, 21 seniors, 18 juniors, and so on. So you've got a great group of freshmen to get you through this period, and it's the last year of the sanctions or whatever you want to call this stuff. I'd get through it, and this would be my bowl year. I would play 12 bowl games this year and we'd play them all with that type of attitude. And as I said last week, and I say every week, each week we'd have a special salute to that team as far as the Beaver Bowl or the Duck Bowl or the Bruin Bowl or whatever bowl it would be, it'd be a special day for us. 
and I'd have a chart in my locker room that would list our schedule. And after the game, when we got back to the locker room, we'd all gather in there and we'd write the score and put a W next to it. And uh, I think that's the type of things that kids like. Remember, they're, they're big bodies, they run fast and so on, but the kids. So you have to get kids to want to win for you and win for the school. And you've got to treat them like adults, but yet you have to treat them with respect. And once you know, they know you respect them and you love them and so on, they'll play hard for you. You can't spank a kid when he doesn't think you love him. Once he knows you love him and you care about him 100%, he'll do anything for you. And uh, I think that's what I would do at USC. I'm not saying none of those things are there. They're probably all there. They're probably doing all of those things. But I think it's so important to treat uh, the players with respect and have them know that, yes, uh, this is what it's all about. You play for pride. Don't worry about what the uh, uh, other people think. Worry about what we think and our family. And uh, I think in some cases, uh, negative things brings a team closer together. And I think you really do pull yourself together with the staff and coaches and family and so on. And you really take great <clears throat> pride in beating people when you don't, when people don't think you can beat them. I, I really do. And I, and I think it makes it a, a pretty situation for people who wanted it to be ugly. And, uh, and I think that's what the situation is, and that's what I do. And have myself surrounded with great coaches, people that wouldn't be afraid to give assignment uh, responsibilities to, let them do it, don't tell them how to do their job, monitor both sides of the football, both offensive and defensively, and as far as the kicking game, and I'd be a, a coach for everyone and uh, love every minute of it. All right, great stuff, Coach, and uh, thanks, Gene, for that one. Uh, our old friend Terry and Day had a question for you again, Coach. He said it was interesting on Tuesday to listen to all the coaches put a pot of positive spin on their team's capabilities as they enter fall camp and the season. As Trojan fans in the last decade, we're used to hearing from a coach who knows the teams are in the you know in the top of the conference, so op- the optimism is understanding for these other coaches because now USC is not you know, in the dominant position they once were in. His question was, when you were coaching, how did you approach your team in the years that you knew you were probably a second-tier team? The kids aren't stupid. So, for example... How would you approach a team like Washington State or any other team on the bottom half of a, on the bottom half of the league? Well, I think you have to be honest. You, you know, kids are smart. Kids know what their capabilities are and so on. So you have to be realistic with them on what your goals are. You can't set goals that that's impossible to reach. Otherwise, you didn't. You're not getting any better. I remember one year, my uh, second or third year at UNLV, when we had Randall Cunningham. He was a senior i think he was at that time nicky woods in that group he was a freshman i remember we went to the, the media date and uh, the coaches you had a media poll and i'm laughing you have a media poll and you have a, a coaches poll and normally the the coaches never voted for themselves you know <laughs> so i remember that the, at the end of the of the voting i'm laughing but the coaches are still looking to see looking at me when I voted for ourselves to win the conference. And uh, and uh, the vote was, I don't know how many teams we had in the league, eight or nine teams or seven teams, and the vote was unanimous. It was unanimous that UNLV would win the conference. And they all looked at me and they said, Coach, you must think you're pretty good. I said, hey, I hate to say we're pretty good, but for me to go back and face my team and there's one guy that didn't vote for UNLV, they would look at me and say, Coach, who was that? And I and I could not say it was me, so we we went back and I told him, hey guys, we're the favorite to win this conference. That means we got to go out and do it. And I voted for us, and uh, it worked. We went 11 and two that year, won our bowl game, lost to SMU when they had one of the greatest teams around. They lost, they beat Notre Dame in their bowl game, the Cotton Bowl, and we lost once at Hawaii in a, on a controversial call there, but. Uh, we won 11 and two. We won our conference, and and that happened. Other years, uh, maybe they were picked. We were picked sixth or fourth or whatever. I was realistic with them. I said they don't think we're very good, but I'm gonna tell you we're gonna be better than what people think. Remember, if they think we should finish fourth and we finish second, we've done a damn good job, and uh, that's what we do. We turn a negative to a positive, like Paul Wolf at Washington State. I think he's gonna be better this year than what people think. So, you know, he'll take that and, and build on that. Everyone picked us for last. 
So, guys, every game we win is a game we weren't supposed to win. So let's get out there and let's get it done. They played good at the end of the year. They really did. And uh, I think they'll be a better team this year. So, you know, you you, you can't really uh, be negative. Every coach is going to get out there and say you're better. How can you get up there and say, well, we're not going to be very good this year? You can get out there, up there and say, you know, we lost a lot of great players last year, so we're going to have to rebuild, but we're going to play hard. And we're going to count them up at the end of the year and see how many we can win. You know, uh, so uh, it's, uh, you know, you're not going to get up there and tell people you're not going to be very good. You've got to get up there and tell the kids know what you're saying. And, and you tell your kids, hey, kids, we've lost a lot of players. We've got a lot of younger, younger players playing this year, but they're going to get valuable experience. And these kids are going to line up and, and hit you right in the mouth. And, and, you, and you teach your kids that, that don't be intimidated because uh, we've got a great program and we're going to play them one quarter at a time. So, you know, that's the way you got to go with it. Makes sense, Coach. All right. Thanks, uh, Terry, for that one. Mike wanted to know a lot of uh, specific people asking for, I mean, a lot of questions today, Coach, asking for you specifically. So uh, it's good stuff. He wants to know what your opinion is on using a defensive lineman for running the ball in short yards, you know, short yardage and goal line situations if the regulars can't can't get it in there. What do you think about doing something like that, especially in light of Mark Tyler's unknown status right now? Well, you know, um, you can do that. Uh, kids have a lot of fun with that. They really do. Kids have a lot of fun when you take one of your more talented big linemen that can run and uh, put them in goal line situations. And it's more or less a challenge to the kids, too, that you can get it in. You know, you call it a certain special player formation when you put your big tackle in and he's a running back and so on. I've done that before. But I've found that it's best not to waste time on that. What I have done is rather have one of my strongest running backs get behind one of those guys and put two of them in or three of them in or have your strongest players in there and and just get in there and and blow them out. Uh, The timing of the running back, the timing of the handoff and all of that is very important. But, you know, you can put a guy at fullback like Stanford did last year. They took their middle linebacker and he plays fullback. Talk big kid, fast kid, blows in there, not afraid to hit a linebacker or hit somebody or knock a defensive end out or cut a defensive end down and have your running back run behind him and then have nice play action passes behind that. So, uh, no, I, I think it's great to get in two tight ends at the times and three backs in the backfield, and you challenge your kids. You say, hey, you know what? This is a special uh, play or a special series that we have in here because if we don't make it, we're going to lose, but if we make it, we're going to win. And you just let them know that. Hey, here we're in this situ- situation. I call it breaker. I would yell, breaker, 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 which meant we're going to break their back or they're going to break our back. And we'd line up and we'd practice it. In fact, when we practice it, I would allow the defense to have 12 players. I'd tell them over there they got 12 players. We'd let the defensive team have 12 players. We'd have 11 players. And we'd challenge ourselves to get in against 12 players. And I think you have to do these things to build confidence up so that your kids know that when you're in this situation, they will not be denied. They will not be denied. And uh, I think that's part of putting pride in the unit. All right, cool stuff. I don't know if we'll see that from USC this year, but who knows? Maybe maybe it's something they try. Uh, here's a voicemail question, kind of interesting take on looking at Oregon. Hello, Ryan. This is Paul from Bakersfield. Hey, first of all, congratulations on your uh, recent nuptials. Um, last week on the podcast, I don't remember whether it was Coach who was talking about it or somebody brought it up about the new officiating and had brought up uh, the way Oregon handles their snap count or handles the football. And I noticed a couple times last year that it seemed like they had two footballs in play. Uh, when the receiver couldn't find the line judge to give him the ball, he would just toss it away. And then we had a line judge or a side judge trying to track down a football while they had a ball boy running the ball onto the field, so they had two footballs in play. And I was just wondering if uh, anybody's ever wanted to discuss that or maybe the coach could answer that question. But thanks anyway, and continue the uh, good work. We appreciate it up here in Bakersfield. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. 
Paul, thank you for calling. I'll tell you, Pat, I've got some great memories of playing out there, playing when I was a head football coach at Pasadena City College. We used to play Jerry Collis up there at Bakersfield. You had great teams at Bakersfield College, and I think you still do, but we used to play up there, and there was 21,000 people there at Bakersfield Stadium. I'll tell you what a beautiful site that was. That was great junior college football at that time. But but let me just get, get into this, and, and I'll tell you exactly. I agree with you, Paul, 100%. Uh, even before they played Oregon last year, I watched the officials work games to see exactly the pace of what an official works a game. Now, what I mean by that, I think it's a distinct advantage for Oregon. When I watch the umpire spot the ball immediately after a play because Oregon's lined up and he's, they're on the ball. That doesn't mean you should speed up your placing of the football. You should follow your mechanics of what you've followed and worked every other game. But uh, it's hard for an official not to speed up his mechanics when you're playing a game, uh, a team like Oregon or Arizona State that just lines up and wants to snap the football, and they're sort of waiting on you. And I, and I really think uh, you have a good point here. I haven't seen the ball boy running the ball in or anything on the field. I don't know if they allow that. I think the side official headlines and the field judge always takes the ball in or the, and gives it to the umpire and they put it down. But it is uh, a unique question because I agree with you 100%. I watched the games very closely, and the, the same crews who worked the week before pick up their pace as far as working their pace as far as setting the ball down, as far as spotting it ready to play for Oregon games. And if I was a head coach playing uh, the University of Oregon, I would take video clips of their games the week before, send it to Tony Carreni, who is now the coordinator of officials, and I'd say, now this is the pace this crew works. Against Oregon, they should work the same pace. They should not speed it up just because Oregon wants them to speed it up. If they're going to work that way, the way they work against Oregon all the games, that's fine. But be consistent. Just don't speed it up where Oregon gets an, uh, an advantage. So uh, I've talked on this topic before, and I really believe that it is an advantage when the crews do speed it up. You'll see them hustling around faster. You'll see them spotting the ball, throwing the ball around faster, trying to put the ball down and so on, which is really uh, an advantage for a team that does that type of uh, or plays that type of game. So I would make a big thing to do with the officials before we played a team that did that, saying, hey, place the ball, do the same mechanics you used last week, this week. Don't change them because we've got a clock on you guys from the week before, the couple weeks before, on how just you do work. And uh, I think it's something to be discussed. Okay. Uh, thanks for that one, Paul. I'll have to watch for that, too. I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Uh Let's see. John is, is frustrated a little bit here. John said he watched the Notre Dame, Notre Dame game, USC Notre Dame, on ESPNU last week. And it's frustrating to me how much the offense really got worse as the season went on. Lane Kiffin didn't do a very good job, in my opinion. In the red zone, they were terrible. Tonal screen on the five-yard line, the exact same running play uh, from one three straight snaps, all for no gain. I think this guy's a great recruiter. And he's organized, but as far as play caller goes, I'm not sure he's the answer. He wants to run a pro offense, but how many teams in the league really use the inside zone and outside zone plays and are on tops in the league? Not many. The Broncos were the exceptions. The good running teams use those schemes, but they use the power O, open slide, ISO, lead draws much more. And as far as the passing game goes, they don't stretch backers like they used to. Very few intermediate routes. Is there any chance of eventually having another play caller. So very frustrated, John, there. What are your thoughts on the offense there, Coach? Well, John obviously knows football. I think he knows football, and he does uh, know exactly what play calling is about and what uh, line blocking schemes are and so on. And, and uh, you know, you can't allow penetration. And, and when you do these zone blocking schemes, uh, it's very difficult to stop penetrations and in short yardage situations if one guy breaks through the seam or drives you backwards or whatever, the, the play's shot. The back really doesn't have a shot. I think you've got to be able to blow people out on the line of scrimmage. I think the, the game is won on the line of scrimmage offensively as well as defensively. I think you have to have certain plays that you do, double-team down and kick out and lead guards through or lead fullbacks through and learn to, 
to, to, to play what you call tough football. You can't be soft on the offensive line. You've got to be tough on the offensive line. You've got to have your elbows bleeding. You've got to be able to, to play tough football because you're going against some of the top athletes that are on a football team in the defensive fronts today, guys that are big, strong, and fast, and, and, and want to come after you. So you've got to be as big and tough and strong and nasty and angry as they are because the line of scrimmage is where the point of attack is. And I think that uh, nothing frustrates me more when you're on the second two, or say you're on the two-yard line or three-yard line, and you come out with no remaining backs, or you come out and throw up some type of bubble screen or something that is tipped on the line of scrimmage or whatever, and you lose yards. And that, you know, the the name of the game. Remember, when you get down there towards the the end zone, the field shortens. The field becomes shorter, which means there's less territory to defend. So that means it comes to a point now where you've got to run at people and you've got to be able to, to kick some butt. And if you don't kick some butt and they don't have respect for you being able to run the football down, there, they'll play the pass because they know you can't run it in. So, uh, But if they know you can run it in, then the play-action pass is really a valuable piece of your goal-line offense because they know that, uh-oh, these guys can run it in. These guys can get nasty. And then the little simple pass, play-action pass, back in the flat, drags, different things, quick outs, and so on are there. So, uh, uh, yeah, I agree with 100%. Uh, you've got to be angry. You've got to be nasty. You've got to be able to have that type of offensive line and that type of offense to get in when you're down there. Uh, okay, let's see. One last thing, Coach. Uh, we weren't going to have Gerard Martinez on this week, and we did have a lot of – recruiting questions but we had so many team questions as well in the fall camp starting this week we're going to kind of focus this podcast on the team but uh this one came up before and i thought maybe we could address it real quick for uh steven uh or it's stefan i think it's uh, uh but he said with the sanctions that usc are facing particularly the 75 scholarship limit he was wondering if it is possible for players to opt out of their scholarship and pay their way to usc in full it's an expensive proposition but he he gave some examples like, say, you know, Matt Barkley's family was wealthy and they wanted to um, give back the scholarship. Were they available to do that? Uh, I think we talked about this before, Coach, and I, if I remember your answer correctly, it's going to be a funny one. Well, no, I'm not going to be funny. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say it would be tremendous if people like that were that loyal to a program to say, you know what, I'm willing to help the program. This is my son's maybe final year and uh, we're willing to pay he'll probably be there if he's planning on coming out one semester right so he'd be playing one semester then he'd be going to all of the combines and all the different things if he had a great year if you're able to do that it would be a tremendous thing and uh and i think it would again angry uh maybe the ncaa or whatever but that's too bad uh, but uh, it's not realistic. Uh, you don't see that happening very often, yet I'd love to see that happen. To say there are parents that can't afford to do that, that would be a tremendous thing to do. Uh, but uh, I don't think that will happen. Uh, but it would, uh, say, five parents. Five parents, let's say out of 75 or 85 parents were willing to do that, that would what an effect that would make on the football team. It would be an absolute tremendous thing to be able to do that, especially if there are five seniors and this was their final year and you could pick who those seniors are or juniors are that are planning on coming out. If they had that type of year, it'd be a tremendous thing to do, which you would be able to replace those scholarships then if they didn't, if they didn't count because those people didn't take them. So realistic, no, would it be great? Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't think that good question though. Good question because it might ring a bell in somebody's ear that's listening. Yeah, I mean, obviously, USC is an expensive school to go to. If you were going to a, a smaller uh, public school, that tuition wasn't that expensive. Maybe that would be a little easier to do. But it is very high at USC. You're talking. I mean, I mean, even at thirty but, grand for a semester. Yeah, but even if a, a family is loaded, I, you know, is there pride there, or is there? something that would, you know, an ego that would make you not want to, you know, hey, I want to be on scholarship, even though, you know, 
people that could afford tuition. I, you know, it's oh, still going to be paying a lot of money. Not me. Not me. If I had that kind of money, a lot of kind of money, I'd want to be a part of the program, man. I'd say if this helps our program for one semester, we're going to pay this semester. My son's been on scholarship two years now. We appreciate everything. If this will put another kid on scholarship and help the program, if I had that kind of money, I would do it. Too bad I didn't have a lot of money. You probably couldn't do it if you did 10 kids. Wouldn't that be something if yeah. some rich guy had a kid and he says, you know what, we'll pay for 10 kids. That would really be, then the NCAA would really be ringing their cowbell. <laughs> cool. All right, Coach. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on, sharing some time over in uh, Catalina Island. Enjoy your time over there and hope it's a fun summer day for you. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks a lot, Ryan. We want to thank everybody out there uh, for checking in with us. And you guys have a great summer. And don't worry about it if your sports page isn't in your paper. There you go. All right. Thanks, Coach. And uh, we'll be back in uh, 30 seconds talking with uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. Lots to get to, lots of topics, and lots more of your questions. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. We have the man who covers the USC Trojans for uscfootball.com on the line, Dan Weber. Dan, how's it going? Very good, Ryan. And it's a good week. We get to... We finally get to go. Thursday night, we're ready to go. That couldn't come soon enough. I agree with you 100%. Can't wait to get going Thursday night. They'll have some some night practices, which is kind of interesting. I thought there'd be a lot of morning ones. Practice time's kind of all over the place, but we'll be back there out in Howard Jones Field, a little bit in the Coliseum as well, covering the team. And check out uscfootball.com for all the latest. We'll have uh, some position previews going on. All this week on uscfootball.com, we'll launch our Fall Camp Central page, like a one-stop shopping for everything going on for USC Fall Camp. So should be some good stuff. I know you're excited for it. Yeah, uh, we. Uh, I think it was interesting, Lane. Uh, I was kind of kidding, Lane, at, at media day about uh, how many different starts, uh, starting times they have for practice. And, you know, there's six different game starting times. And I said, you've got more than that for your practices. And he it was an interesting uh, comment. He said the essential reason that they're changing their starting times uh, is because with the summer's classes and different things like that, they uh, they didn't they wanted to accommodate every single player's uh, academic schedule, so that uh, uh, basically they tracked down every one you know every guy and uh, you know on every day what they can you know what time can you make it and all that and they basically adjusted practice schedules from early morning to you know evening uh essentially because of uh of academics so uh you got to give them credit for that uh, I, I don't think you see that that much and i think they're still in that you know change over time uh when they're uh rearranging academic schedules to clear away the morning, uh, you know, in the fall for practice time. So they had to do a little, you know, scrambling, I think, this summer. But uh, uh, that's the reason that their uh, the practices are going to, you know, move all around. And it's probably a good thing when you think about it because um, their game times are sure going to be all over the board and all, you know, three different days of the week, uh, you know, Thursday night game, Friday night game. Saturday games that start as early as 12:30, and uh, uh, you know, uh, essentially a noon game, and then uh, uh, games that start as late as eight. So uh, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna, they don't need a, you know, they need an alarm clock or a secretary <laughs> or something. To, but you don't want to get into any kind of a, you know, like rhythm. Like this is when we, you know, every day this is when we're gonna practice, or every day this is when we're gonna play a game. There is no more of that. No, I was putting it all into my calendar just because there's practice times all over the place. So making sure I know when when they're practicing and when to be down there. I just got an email this morning 
three more of those practice times. <laughs> hey, James, three more. Yeah. <laughs> three more practice times, James. So I think we got some new times in there, uh, <laughs> ones that hadn't been used yet. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you just better be, uh, you know, pay attention every day and every play. And uh, uh, it's probably, you know, for everybody involved, maybe it's a good thing. But uh, they're not going to be a routine, uh, any routine days, that's for sure. And there's not much two-a-day practices going on. There's a, there's a couple of, two or three of them in there. Two, but. yeah, two, two times or two-a-days. And they get to the Coliseum earlier this year, which I think is probably a good thing. Pay a little more attention to the Coliseum. Uh, you know, they were there, uh, you know, every Saturday pretty much last uh, spring. And uh, I, I, I kind of like that. I think, I think the Coliseum maybe was uh, the whole idea of, you know, it's our Coliseum and nobody else uh, comes in here and, and takes it away from us. Kind of got lost a little bit in the shuffle last year. I thought Lane also had a good answer to that at Media Day when he said, uh, I, I said, what do you do to, you know, Pete was so successful when you were here. You know, you guys won all those, uh, you know, games in a row at the Coliseum, three years, you know, nobody beat you. And so what do you, you know, how do you think, uh, how does that work? And Lane said, you know what, he said, every one of those games we lost, we were winning in the second half. He said if we had just finished them out, you know, it's not so much, uh, you know, the fact that it was the Coliseum. He said we just didn't finish games. We didn't finish half times. We didn't finish quarters. We didn't, you know, we didn't finish. And um, he said, I think that, you know, the ability to finish uh, changes everything. Uh, and he's right, you know, they basically – led in the second half and in every game they lost at the Coliseum and uh, probably shouldn't have at least two of those anyway. So uh, we'll see. But there does seem to be more of an emphasis on the Coliseum this year. We got from Lewis a couple of defensive line questions. Maybe we can jump into that. Um, You talk about Armand Armstead moving from defensive end to defensive tackle and practicing with the first team. you know, obviously, we're we're still waiting on his status right now, but you know, we'll see right. if he's going to be cleared. Um, there was also reports coming out about George Uko pe- playing the same position, and and heard that he would look like he's one of the best on the team uh, during spring football. He said, if if Armstead is cleared to play, do you think the coaches would uh, move Uko to to the nose tackle, and so he could play next to Armstead? You know. I- um, I think that's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I, but I, I think essentially you have to look at that as a four-man rotation, and I, and they're doing a lot of where you know two of them are playing, you know, uh, you know the three technique or whatever. So uh, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of mix and matching with the four. You know, uh, you throw Christian Tupo in there, and you, and then Dejon Harris, and you've got two real veterans. Uh, with you know real talent so i don't know that you're going to look at that defensive front you know if you get all four of them uh rotating i don't think you're going to look at it as you know one guy one position or whatever i think you're going to look at it all four of them playing two positions and being able to do uh you know pretty much uh you know both techniques that, that you need so uh uh i mean i think that's the ideal situation if you can get four to play the two uh the two spots and just go all out and uh, play the way, uh, you know, at Orgeron wants you to play and just be able to, uh, you know, do the things that, you know, very often last year, I mean, they were down to this, the two tackle rotation for the Oregon, uh, you know, the Oregon game and they just ran out of gas. Uh, but you put four of those guys, all who've played except for Yuko, who's he's just coming in with, a, you know, tremendous physical skills, uh, in, in that rotation, you've got a heck of a rotation, but but I wouldn't get too locked into that you need these two guys playing next to one another. I think the the rotation, uh, you know, will use uh, all four for the two spots uh, if all four are able to go. Um, yeah, well, I, I think that's kind of part of his follow-up as well. Um, they're going to try to get, you know, rotations in there, like you said, but he was suggesting – Lewis was suggesting, do you think it, this, something like this would help against a, uh, an offense like Oregon if you line up Kennard at left defensive end who's moved down and Perry at right defensive end with Armstead and Nuko in the middle and don't flip the strong side and weak side 
with tight end shifts well, like I, they did I last mean, year. I think that's to be, to be determined. I don't know that they've decided if they're going to, you know, make it a little more simple where, uh, you know, and play the way, for example, they played against uh, um, uh, Cal last year. When basically they went, you know, strong side to the wide side, and they pre, you know, predetermined, and they lined up, you know, left and right, and uh, and just went that way. It was simpler, and it, and it certainly was effective. Uh, I think that that's one of the key decisions they're going to have to make. You know, uh, last year, I think because of uh, you know the newness, and because you know the coaches new to the players, the players new to the system, to some extent. I thought, you know, uh, they had some difficulty adjusting to formations after the, you know, offense would break the huddle. And they had difficulty, I think, at times communicating, uh, you know, what the adjustments were going to be. And they were late getting into the defense, I thought. And I thought that was one of the things that really, um, you know, helped them against Cal is they predetermined it basically uh, by the wide side and, uh, you know, made that the strong side. Uh, that's kind of my, would be my preference, but with this team, I think they're going to be able to do more and they're going to be able to adjust quicker and they're going to be able to, uh, you know, I just don't want them to get too tricky. I mean, I think this is a team with a lot of talent. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know how many, anybody in the country got better defensive ends than Devon Kennard and, uh, and Nick Perry physically. I, 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 you know, show me. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know that you need to get too tricky with, um, you know, with guys like that. I just think basically you just want to line up and play hard, play fast, and uh, and play aggressive. And uh, probably you, you want them playing first, thinking second. You know, I don't think you want them, uh, you know, overthinking too much and trying to say, well, what was that call? What are we, you know, what combination defense is this or whatever? I, I'd I'd like to see him try to take people out fairly early in the game, put them in, you know, and and the difference this year you hope is that when a team is third and 12, it's USC's advantage, not the third and 12 team. You know, <laughs> uh, last year it was basically uh, you'd, you'd rather it be third and two than t- third and 12. And that's no exaggeration. I mean, that's absolutely the truth. I think, you know, there were a sense that, USC had a better chance of stopping somebody if it was third and two than third and 12. And that, it, it was stunning. I mean, their inability uh, to play third and long. And uh, you don't think that's going to be the case this year. You just think, okay, they're not going to be able to have enough time to do a lot of third and 12. And that was a big difference with Pete's teams that when they were really good is when you were third and 12, you, were, you had to take a chance. And very often, they're going to turn it over, turn you over, get a short field, you know, make it easy on the offense, that kind of thing. And that stopped happening, you know, the last three or four years. And it really made things tougher. And uh, one would like to think that with the uh, the kind of athletes that they're going to have up front, they're going to be able to put pressure on people, put them in, uh, in, in, in situations where they have to take a chance. And uh, and they're going to be able to take advantage of it. I mean, that to me is 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 the key for the whole season. Is you know make it easier on your offense. Uh, really, really take teams out of games with your defense. And and that almost didn't happen at all last year, where they were just able to flat out take a team out with their defense. And uh, I think for this team to be a good team. Uh, when they play people like Utah and, and, and uh, Arizona State in that first, you know, in the month of September in the Pac-12, they need their defense to take the other team's offense out of the game and, and turn it into a liability and turn it into uh, USC ball and, and short fields and things like that. And, and that just has to happen with this team this year. And it looks like they've got the athletes to have a chance to do that. But, you know. We'll see. With Armand, uh, we haven't heard anything. Uh, they have not heard. We understand. I may have had his last uh, physical test and all that. Don't think they've heard back yet. They've been guaranteed they will know something before um, Thursday. So uh, uh, have to be on uh, on alert for that one. But uh, we know he was optimistic and his dad was optimistic the last time we talked to him recently. So. Uh, uh, I guess we'll be optimistic until we hear differently. Yeah, that's good. Ed had that question: When are we going to hear on Armand Armstead? And uh, Ed just let you know, you know, like like Dan said, we'll probably hear something 
you know, in the very beginning of fall camp is what we're expecting to hear. So we'll we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, Armand said he was he was guaranteed that they would have an answer. He also said, though, I guess, and he, the second thing he did say was the answer might be they don't have an answer. I, you know, they, they, they may still not know, think they know enough. Uh, and he's now in, under the he was uh, under the care of a. Uh, top cardiologist at USC Medical Center. Now he's he's he's, uh, he's meeting with uh, uh, the top blood, uh, and I, you know I'm not sure exactly what what the specialty is called, but it's a person who diagnoses uh, blood diseases and disorders and that kind of thing. So uh, uh, it's in that it's in that area now as to uh, you know they've been basically uh, I think uh, uh, medicating them and running tests. And let you know, letting him work out, work hard, do all the weightlifting, do all the conditioning, and that kind of thing, and um, and seeing how you know uh, he reacts to uh, whatever uh, you know regimen they have him on, uh, which we don't know any of that. We have no no details about any of the treatment or any of the you know the things they're looking at, but we do know that he's definitely being uh, you know being evaluated uh, all through the summer. Uh, he certainly looks good. He certainly feels good. Uh, he's certainly upbeat about it. Uh, so I, I wish we knew more, but, yeah. uh, but I, I heard, I, I thought I heard today that they didn't hear anything yet. Uh, as of, as of this morning, they hadn't heard anything. Okay. Well, we'll keep, uh, keep you guys updated on all that. Once soon as we find anything out, we'll post up stuff on uscfootball.com. Uh, Jeff had a question on, Will Andrew, uh, linebacker Will Andrew, he's, he was looked really impressive in the spring. Do you think that USC, what are the chances USC gets a guy like that into the mix? Well, all he does is make plays. He goes out there in the summer and, uh, you know, uh, he'll jump a, you know, a, a route and then get an interception. You know, he's not a flashy guy. But, uh, you know, things don't drop off that much when he's out there. I mean, he, you know, uh, one would think that, uh, you know, I mean, you, you know, you're looking at the new freshmen and, uh, you know, want to give them a chance or whatever, uh, but uh, he's just a solid guy who, you you know, you trust and you feel like he belongs there. Now you've got Dallas Kelly also at that spot, and, you know, they give you kind of two of a similar kinds of guys at that spot, uh, but, uh, you know, he's, He's always going to be in the mix because he he just you know he can make plays. Uh, he's so unflashy, uh, you know. He just doesn't do anything that draws attention to himself except you know make a play. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think he'll, he's in the mix for sure. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and I think we're going to see. We've talked about this before a little bit. We're going to see bigger rotations. You're going to see more guys play. Uh, there was too many guys gassed at the end of games, and you know Ed Orgeron talked about playing eight guys on the line. I think we might see more guys mixed in from linebacker. It seems like the coaches are going to they're going to trust the players a little bit. Maybe they they didn't trust. Yeah, I everyone. think that's a key word. I think yeah. that the word trust. Uh, I think it's got to be the combination between players trusting the coaches and what they're doing, and really knowing what they're doing, and the coaches trusting the players and knowing the players better. And knowing that, you know, uh, I think that's a, especially on defense, I think that trust uh, factor really matters. Uh, and I think there's much more of that this year. I mean, I think part of it last year was it was such a transition that nobody knew exactly uh, what to expect, the coaches with the players and vice versa. And it, it just kind of, uh, you know, then there was a tendency to only play certain guys just because you weren't sure what everybody could do, what, what they knew, and then, you you know, you ran out of gas. It was um, uh, kind of a, you know, and then you had the situation where they weren't tackling as well in practice. So, uh, you know, they didn't get a chance to develop their depth, and they didn't get a chance to find other people to trust. And I think that's happened a lot over the winter and the way they watch film together, and the way they've worked on their communication, you know, skills, uh, and the way that you know the coaches coach them up in uh, uh, in uh, spring ball. I think uh, if you run into Monty now, he's an entirely different person from from what we saw last year. I think he he's so much more upbeat. I think he just really feels uh, 
like he understands what he's got and to work with and where they are. And, you know, after he'd been in the NFL for as many years as he'd had, even though they had the one year at Tennessee, uh, I think, and, you know, it was still all new players. Uh, I think it was a real learning experience, and I just think he feels so much more. He's a guy that, you know, gets close to the people he's coaching and and really needs to know them and like them and, you know, feel like he just understands them. And I think you see that now in a way you didn't see it at all last year. Uh, And and it's just it seemed like a much better situation. All right. Uh, we have a voicemail question uh, from guys that has to do with the officiating stuff that we, we learned about last week at the seminar. So here, here you go. Hi, guys. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is Guy, a singular guy. And uh, I'd like to talk to I'd like to ask a question of uh, either Coach Hyde or uh, Dan, and that would be about this uh, rule, this new rule about uh, taunting. Lack of taunting or not uh, anti-taunting rule. I I believe it's a very dangerous uh, rule and and it'll make a mess of, of games. I think that it's a sinister sort of thing and I think it, it puts too much power in, into the discretion of any any single uh, zebra out there that um, wants to change the outcome of a game. Anybody could c- claim uh, taunting. You don't have to prove it, right? And so, and there's no replay. So, um, some zebra says uh, doesn't like USC uh, taunting. Touchdown is 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 finished. I would like to hear a uh, response to that. And fight on. And uh, thank you very much in advance. Okay, uh, guy. I think it would be a really legitimate question if this were the rule. Uh, Last year, or if last year's entire crew of officials had been brought back to the Pac-12, uh, Pac you might be rightly so uh, nervous about putting uh, that kind of uh, power into the hands of people who, you know, shown that they didn't care what the uh, imbalance in uh, calls were, didn't care how obvious it was that they were calling it, you know, against USC, for example. Uh, didn't mind a bit. Uh, I don't think this year's crews are going to do that. I think they actually are just going to, you know, much more like an NFL game where we don't get a sense that they're trying. You know, they might make a mistake, but it's not like the sense that they're invested in one team or the other team. I do think with college football, the problem will be uh, – I watched, for example, was watching some, uh, uh, pre, you know, previous year's games and you watch a t- you know a touchdown and you see whatever happens happens and you think gosh now would that be what would they call that this year and you're thinking i don't know that's close uh what is that is that spontaneous not trying to show them or is that like oh, and, and you say you wish they didn't have to make that call the second thing is they have to be very careful that they don't call that one way on the road and and another way at home because you know if you you score a touchdown at Austin Stadium uh game deciding touchdown or whatever and there is one of those semi spontaneous really you know pile on end zone kind of a deals you know that as loud and as loud and as close as that crowd is to the field you know is that one of those ones where you have a much better chance of getting it called uh, on the road against you than at home uh, because the the road crowd is going to be all over those officials to make that call. Uh, I think it puts the officials under a lot of pressure in certain situations. Uh, and uh, so that's one you don't like to see it where there's a, there's a call that, um, on, on you know, if, it, if the game's played at home, it goes one way, and if it's played on the road, it goes another way. Uh, and that one worries me a little bit, uh, how the officials handle the pressure of, of a crowd that will be right on top of them demanding that uh, this celebration went over the line or there was taunting as a, you know, I know he was yelling at, the, at our player, not at his own guy standing next to our player. I mean, of course, who knows who, who, who you were yelling at. Uh, 
so that yeah, it's a worry. I think the home home road and impact of the crowd on the officials there is where you have to just hope that you really do have uh, big time professional guys who all that you know as they said last week at the uh, you know the, the officiating seminar, we do not want to be the penalty police uh, and. I take them at their word. I trust them. I like their demeanor. I like their attitude. I like the people they've got running it. Um, so uh, we're going to trust them, but it does put them under a little more pressure, and they know it. I mean, they heard all the people reacting last week to, uh, you know, and all the questions that came about that rule. That was the rule that everybody wanted to ask them about, and it's the one that people were worried about, and it's the one, I think, where the home crowd will think it can – influence the officials a little bit um, if there's a any kind of a prolonged celebration um, so so I'll give you a little bit on that one and say I'm going to trust the officials until we see differently but they they're going to have to deal with it uh, yeah, I was mentioning it to coach Hyde uh, off the air before we talked and um, he was he was curious about the rule and I was explaining to him one of the questions that was asked at the officiating seminar is you know, if the guy jumps, you know, dives in the end zone from the two, it's a spot foul from the two, 15 yards from there. But if it's, say, the quarterback from the 35-yard line throwing a pass, he taunts a, a defensive lineman, it's a spot foul from the 35, so the, the offense would get the ball at the 50. And Coach Hyde actually brought up, what if it's a 90-yard pass and you're, you're doing it from the 10-yard line and it's like a, you know, wow. you get all the way back, you know, you take 90 yards off the, you know, points off the board, and you get like a halfway, you know, half the distance to the goal penalty. You start off from the five yard line. So I mean, something like that could be an absolutely enormous penalty. Well, and the other part of that is uh, what happens so often is they see the second half of the play in the penalty. So let's say you have a situation where the original taunt comes from the defensive guy, and the quarterback maybe stupidly reacts. And by the time the referee is looking back at the play, he sees the quarterback taunt the defensive end. Having missed, maybe, the defensive end yelling at the quarterback. Then he throws the flag. Holy criminy. I mean, just think of the way that could change a game. I mean, uh, and, and obviously we know, you know, the Torrin Harris uh, – you know, Tyron Smith blocked the extra point against uh, Arizona State. You know, Torrin Harris, you know, runs it down to the five and then decides to, you know, leap, you know, leap into the end zone. And uh, uh, that those two points would have been gone forever. Um, there would have been no replay because that would have been the end of the play. Take them off the, you know, off the board. And USC ends up winning the game by point. Well, they wouldn't have won the game by a point. And, um, you know, there may have been an execution on the sideline at that point. I mean, honest guy, if you do something and you you get your whatever, your score taken off the board, I can't even imagine running back to this. That's one of those one play, plays where you either run up the tunnel or you run to the other side of the field, but you probably don't want to run back to your own bench, I'm thinking. Yes. Uh, if by the time <laughs> you get there, the you know, the points have already been taken off the board. Uh that would be like the longest. Hopefully they keep running that play because I think everybody in the Pac-12 is going to run that play for every team uh, to show them this is what could happen to you. You have to run to the sideline, and you're not going to get those two points after you ran 90-some yards with the football. Uh, uh, so I think uh, USC, that, that penalty, that extra point, blocked extra point, will be shown to every team in the Pac-12. And um, – uh, it's something you just don't even want to think about uh, as a player. Hopefully that will scare them enough to just say, I run up, I, you know, I cross the end zone, you know, I cross the goal line into the end zone, turn around, hand the football to the referee, and just keep running and get to the sidelines. Uh, the thought of, you know, end zone, you know, end zone uh, celebration should just be out of the picture at this point. It's not worth taking a chance. Yeah, no, completely. We'll see what if the coaches address that at all in fall camp, and we'll we'll report on that for you. Uh, one last thing: Jeff in Boston is a longtime Trojan fan. He says he loves the podcast, and 
has been listening to every episode since number 20. Um, but he had a, wow. a yeah, so I've been listening a long time. We're right. on episode 180 right now, so it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, he had a different uh, opinion on this uh, lack of fairness in the NCAA. He said, in his opinion, USC was guilty of loss of institutional control and failure to monitor. USC's athletic department clearly fail, failed to monitor the NCAA. And the administration obviously lost control of the athletic department for allowing them to ignore such an important stakeholder. Secondly, I disagree that the perception of the NCAA is inconsistent in its rulings. In my opinion, they are incredibly consistent. They always give preferential treatment to the insiders like OSU. That said, the solution to USC's dilemma is easy to become an insider. Suing over spilled milk won't solve anything. In fact, it might set the relationship back even further. Just as thoughts, it's frustrating to see politics and sports, but that's how large organizations operate. The faster USC learns this, and I suspect Pat Hayden already has, the better. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Jeff. Let's hope uh, what Jeff said at the very end there is correct, that there has been a learning curve that has actually involved real learning about, uh, I, I will say this, the first column I wrote, first time, first, uh, oh gosh, first week I was here, got killed by people on the P because I said, I had said years ago covering USC that they needed to end the uh, NCAA you know, charade after a year. They needed to self-penalize, they needed to self-report, they needed to do everything they could they needed to get on the NCAA side, and they needed to make it look like that was the case. Whether that was the right thing to do, the fair thing, whatever, it was the best thing for USC to do. A lot of people didn't agree with me then. I think everybody probably agrees with me now. Uh, you know, I, I think the NCAA went to a, a, a length of, uh, of bias in terms of you know coming after USC that you couldn't even imagine. And they, uh, uh, they did things in terms of some of the findings and making up evidence and saying people said things that they didn't say and they're tying it to uh, Todd McNair in ways in which they haven't even thought about doing to any other coach at any other program. Uh, and hopefully they'll pay a severe penalty for that in, the, in, in civilian court where they actually have to be able to prove what they say. Uh, but you're right. Uh, Jeff is right. Uh, USC should have been on top of the NCAA much more than they were, should have monitored it more. I know it's easy to say that in hindsight, but uh, uh, I think it was obvious the NCAA was under a great deal of pressure to nail USC. And since USC hadn't really defended itself in any public way, they allowed the media to jump on that bandwagon and for three and four years just scream and shout, you know, how ineffective the NCAA was because they didn't do anything with USC. Now they know that the NCAA isn't effective even when it does something because they've got too many uh, insiders to deal with, too many, you know, they can't penalize UConn, for example, in basketball during the season because UConn's too important to them uh, for all the money the NCAA makes in the, in the men's basketball tournament. I mean, there's, there are completely different standards for football and basketball. The NCAA doesn't make any money in, bas- in football, so what do they care who they penalize? Uh, but I guarantee you, for example, watching Kentucky in basketball, who make all kinds of money for the NCAA, watching how they deal with USC in football, which they don't care, uh, you know, it's obviously a double standard. Or watching how they treat an SEC school. Do uh, you think an SEC school would not be allowed, you know, to, to play in the first ever uh, SEC championship game? Or, you know, that's, that's just not going to happen. But uh, they don't really care that much about the Pac-12. Pac-12 has to make them care. It has to be on the inside in ways in which, uh, you know, it probably makes you feel a little unseemly that you'd want to be on the inside with, uh, you know, people like Paul D and, you know, Missy Conboy at Notre Dame who seems to have a great deal of difficulty knowing what's going on in her own athletic department but wanted to know how did that Reggie Bush nine-year-old in Pala get all tricked up and nobody noticed it, you know, and it just she had no idea what she's talking about. But if those people can sit in judgment of lack of institutional control at USC and you see what's going on at their programs and you think, hmm, it's not exactly, you know, what you know or what you're doing, but who you know and uh, how much they decide not to 
take it out on you. I mean, to say of no lack of institutional control on Ohio State is just beyond mind-boggling or uh, UNC. You just think this is this is incredible. But Jeff has a really good take on it that USC part of USC's institutional control in, in athletics should have been monitoring um, the NCA more closely and making sure that you know the NCA wasn't able to uh, take the kind of shot at USC that USC kind of gave them a chance to take. And um, let's hope there has been a lot of learning about that. We would have to assume that there has, because probably to this point, we haven't heard anything from anybody at USC that makes us believe that there's been a lot of learning <laughs> in that particular area. But we shall see. Uh, maybe actions will speak louder than words, but we just haven't heard uh, we haven't heard anybody at USC either make the case for USC or make the case against the NCA in ways in which uh, uh, at least people would say, okay, they really do get it, and they need to make the NCA understand they get it. I mean, the NCA isn't nice to the Big Ten or the SEC because they like them. They're nice to them because they better be nice to them because bad things will happen if they don't treat the SEC with the respect that Mike Sly wants them treated with, uh, and uh, they know it. Uh, I think they thought we could do whatever we want to USC. They're the outsiders. They're the hated you know, hot dogs on the West Coast. What do we care? Uh, there have to be consequences. I thought the NCA thought we can do whatever we want in this case and we can get away with it. And, uh, you know, mostly they did. The Todd McNair case should be very interesting uh, to see if the NCA has to pay a price for, for uh, what they did uh, in the USC case. All right, Dan. Well, my great. Rant. That's my weekly NCA rant. Yeah, I know. We had another one, too, Ed. Sorry we didn't get to that one. We, we had a bunch <laughs> of other recruiting questions, too, we couldn't get to today. So sorry about that. We had a ton of questions. We tried to get to every one of them. And we'll, you know, we have more podcasts and stuff coming up, of course. Send your questions in again if we didn't get to them this week. Uh, thank you, Dan, uh, for coming on. Thanks to Coach Harvey Hyde. And it was great talking again, Dan. We'll, we'll see you out there Thursday, Thursday for we'll fall camp. We'll see you out there Thursday. Can't wait. Yeah, we're going to do okay. our uh, Ustream show from McKay's. So just before fall camp, we'll have uh, our live show. Check USCFootball.com for that. And then uh, we'll be over at McKay's at 4 o'clock. Then we'll go over to campus at 7 for the opening of fall camp. So it should be a fun time. Big, big, big day. Can't wait. Thursday. Come on. Let's go. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Don't forget, Thursday at 4 p.m., check out our Ustream show, and we'll be back with our regular podcast next Monday. We'll be after the first couple days of fall camp. We'll get the report on that, so stay tuned. listening to the Pear Style Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on parastylepodcast.com or search for Pear Style Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.